Mr. Dias, in the first two interviews, we spoke about your early life in Ceylon, your student days at Cambridge from 1939 to 42, your service as a rear gunner in the Coastal Command during World War II, and finally, your time as a lecturer at Cambridge from 1951 to 1981. Today, we're going to talk about your scholarly work, and we'll start off with your book. I haven't included my time at Aberystwyth. Thank you, as well as your, your very, as you told me, enjoyable time at Aberystwyth. Oh yes, very yes. much, yes. Yes, thank you. That was in our first interview. That's right, yes. Thanks for reminding me. So, we're now going to talk about your scholarly work, and we'll start off with your book on jurisprudence. The first edition was published in 1957 by Dias and Hughes, and according to the foreword, the book was written under rather strange circumstances. Yes, they were very peculiar. Can you explain the circumstances and how this affected your input? Uh, the, the book was based on notes taken during your own lecture course at Aberystwyth. That's right, But yes. written up by someone else, Mr. Hughes, in 1955. That's right, yes. So, how did... Um, how did Hampson, Jennings and Vesidovich become involved? Well, the point was that uh, when the uh, Hughes' own book was published, uh, it was Kurt Lipstein, you know, who had uh, uh, copies of my own book. And he came to me and said, what's all this? This is a remarkable resemblance. And I told Kurt Lipstein the circumstances. And at that time, Mr. Hughes had applied for a post in the Department of Criminology here. And Kurt said that it was very necessary for the Appointments Committee to get to know about this. And so he informed them. And, of course, they dropped Mr. Hughes like a hot potato. Yeah. That's how that came about. Well, now, <coughs> Jack Hansen came into it because he, at that time, was chairman of the Faculty of Law. Uh, Robbie Jennings had been Hughes's tutor when he was an undergraduate at Jesus. Uh, Very interesting. Yes. Hmm. Uh, and uh, Rosinovich, of course, he was, the, uh, he was in the Department of Criminology, to which Hughes had applied uh, for the post. That's how they got involved. Thank you. So this was very early in your career. What caused you to form your opinion so clearly at this young age? Was it perhaps your student days? or? Well, the point was I had no... Uh, clear opinions about things generally. There were one or two matters which I had thought of writing articles on, but I was forced into this uh, because of the scandal which, which erupted <laughs> of the Hughes business. The first edition received some criticism oh, from Goodhart and Hart. Yes which necessitated much rewriting for the second edition. Was this in any way related to the manner in which the first edition had been assembled? 
Oh, now that's a very difficult question to answer. I think about the manner. Let me say, first of all, that I had no intention of writing a textbook on jurisprudence. The most I had ever hoped to do was to write a few articles on this and that. But when this business uh, came about, uh, peace moves of a sort were initiated between Hughes and myself. And it was agreed by the uh, powers that be, Jack Hampson was the chairman of the faculty, and uh, Robert Jennings, and Reginovich of the Department of Criminology. Uh, they thought that the best thing would be for his book to be withdrawn from publication, and that he and I would collaborate in producing a joint book. That's how it came about. Okay. So, the second edition in 1964 was done without Mr. Hughes. That's right. Did this allow you more freedom to express yourself? Well, certainly it did. Yes. And it received very good reviews? Well, yes, or sort. So, the rewriting had been a great success. Had you rethought your ideas, Mr. Dias, or was it merely the extra freedom that you now had? Well, in a sense, one is always rethinking one's ideas, so they develop, yes. Uh, and uh, I suppose I had developed new ideas myself, yes. Hart had apparently complained that the first edition was too broadly ranging. But in the second edition, you stuck to your guns and Durham's review praised your approach, saying yeah, that was... students need a broad introduction before they can follow the specific paths advocated by Hart. In that respect, do you believe that you were justified? I don't know that uh, I could possibly make a comment on that. Uh, for, as, as I said, I had no intention of writing a textbook on numerous problems. And uh, <coughs> when I had to do it, uh, I just sort of put some ideas together and made a book out of it. So the idea of a separate book, The Bibliography of Jurisprudence, 3rd edition 1979, was written to explain the context and the meaning of various terms. Mm. Where did you get this idea from, Mr. Dyers? I didn't get it from anywhere, it's just an idea that occurred to me, that I thought the thing to do is to encourage people to read these uh, articles and books and things themselves, and in order to help them, I thought it would be a good idea to have a little bibliography, giving a brief synopsis of what these books are about so that they would know what they're in for and whether it is the sort of thing they want to uh, start reading. Right. Uh, so, um, it was perhaps necessary because, as you were at great pains to point out, semantics are everything in law, so all possible definitions of words and concepts have to be presented to the readers. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which edition of jurisprudence did this accompany? Can you remember? 
This is the third edition. Right. Uh, yeah. So it would have accompanied which edition of the jurisprudence book? That's the fifth edition. Uh, yes, the bibliography, I think, accompanied the third edition. Thank you. Your wife and daughter are thanked for their help in compiling it, which you imply was a tedious job. Um, you also imply it was their fortitude that kept you going. Did your wife have any interest in the law? No. Oh, excuse me. Just make sure it's... Mr. Dias, just to come back to the question, um, did your wife have any interest in the law? Well, not uh, before she met me, and I suppose naturally she took an interest in it simply because uh, we got married. Because I know your daughter, Julia, is a barrister. That's right. So, in the fifth edition, you admit in the preface that the book was, to quote, born before it was conceived. What did you mean by this? Well, the point is it was born uh, because of the Hughes affair, and uh, that first edition was, as it were, uh, brought into existence. It was forced into existence because of the crisis. Uh, before we conceived, because my ideas changed very radically and fundamentally over the period of time. So, in a sense, the book was born because of the crisis. Yes. Uh, and the, the later editions were conceived later. Very interesting. <laughs> so, you made many major alterations. Oh, certainly, yes. Of each edition over 30 years. That's right. Did your ideas evolve over this time so that you could eventually achieve your aim of trying to give your readers a new way of thinking about the law? I hope to do that. How far I succeeded, I don't know. So, we come now to your next book, which was The English Law of Torts, A Comparative Introduction. That's right. Co-authored by Marcus Sinus, 1976. Yes. And it introduces the common law of torts to mm -hmm. European civil lawyers. It's mentioned that because the UK had joined the, what is now EU, in 1973, it was necessary to promote understanding of each other's systems. Certainly. Do you think that this state of affairs has been achieved more than 30 years on? Not obviously only because of your book, but... No, no. Yeah. Uh, I think so, yes. <coughs> because increasingly, I think, yes, interrelationship, uh, economic, cultural, all the rest of it. And uh, it has been growing ever since. And with the bias on EU law that now is supreme in the UK, and the fact that EU law is based on French law in the first instance, has not the necessity for foreigners to understand the common law perspective considerably diminished? I don't know that I'm in a position to comment on that, how far it has diminished. I don't think it has diminished. It has only made the common law more accessible and uh, I think 
continental lawyers find it increasingly necessary to have an understanding of the common law, just as the common lawyers find it necessary to understand European systems. So, so because of the state of affairs, can you detect ways in which the common law has evolved to accommodate civil law concepts and ways of approaching issues? Mm, not to any marked degree. Common law has been very resilient over the centuries. And well, not so much resilient as adaptable. And I think it has adapted itself uh, to increasing liaison with continental systems. Mr. Dice, how did you become so familiar with the workings of the French and the German civil codes? I don't know that I am either. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know that I am very familiar with either of those systems. Your father and your grandfather were judges in Ceylon. Yes. Um, so the law would have been deeply ingrained, it is deeply ingrained in your background. Certainly. What influence did the common law play in either the philosophy or the workings of the Ceylon system? The Ceylon system is, based, is Roman Dutch law. Uh, so the common law really had very little influence. But because most of the judges and lawyers had been English trained, Naturally, there was a great deal of infiltration of concepts and ways of thinking. And the whole legal system, particularly procedure in courts and things like that, was very much based on the English system. So, naturally, there was a great deal of uh, borrowing from the common law. Okay. Um, also, to the awareness of the problems such similarities or contrasts posed for non-UK lawyers move you to write the book, The English Law of Courts? Um, I think that was the idea, to have a very simplified introduction, for the primarily for the benefit of continental lawyers, but also one hoped for budding lawyers in England. Yes. to have a, a simple introduction to the concepts of the English law of thoughts. Yes. This brings us to your next book, or it was, you might call it a pamphlet, and this was published in 1988, Lectures on the Common Law, the Concept of Law for a Caring Society. It was part of a course given by the Institute of Anglo-American Law in Leiden, which all came out of the summer school for foreign lawyers organised by Professor Hampson. That's right. Did you go to Leiden with Mr Collier to give your paper? Oh yes, indeed I did, yes. Can you remember what it was like? The circumstances? Um, well, you were especially retired then, hadn't you? Yes, yes, yes. But this was chiefly on the initiative of Professor Hampson, who was a comparative lawyer. And... Uh, he suggested to Collier and myself 
rather a good idea if uh, we could present, as it were, a conspectus of English law and English concepts to the continental lawyers who would be very interested to, to hear them. And that's how that came about. Yes. And uh, in jurisprudence, just uh, coming back briefly to your, your book on jurisprudence, it seems you took a detached view on the issue positivism versus naturalism. On page 39 in jurisprudence you say, finally, laws are designed to endure over long periods. That's right, yes. Also on page 49, you use the analogy of 3D objects mm -hmm. and the fourth dimension of time mm -hmm. to restate this premise. These statements declare you a naturalist. Do they? Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> Were you always that way inclined? Or Not always. something no, you no, came no, to? I came to that. Yes. I can't uh, pinpoint any particular point, period or uh, event which triggered that idea, but it sort of grew gradually. Looking back, do you feel any sense of being prophetic in some of the topics that have required new law, highlighting various problems that you foresaw? Not really, no. I'm afraid I haven't been conscious of having not even, for example, how to deal with young tearaways and the whole blame culture in the context of the individual obligation, individual obligations versus society's role. Yes, well, I mean, I've always had uh, strong feelings about that. Mm. Yes, but I don't think there was any particular event which sparked that off. <laughs> so you come then to your book on Toto written with Marcusinus. Yes. And I have the uh, second edition, 1989, which one reviewer from New Zealand called A Joy to Read. And another said it was elevated out of the normal run of books. It was a review in the Law Quarterly Review. Overall, I sense that you were concerned with the mess that UK talk law was in. Completely. Is that still the case? Oh, very much so. But then that's the trouble with the, the law of talk. It's changing weekly. And it's never static. It's in a state of flux all the time. In the introduction, you contrast the fondness for litigation in the USA with the UK position and say that we are 10 to 15 years behind their fashion. You also note the differences in awards in US and UK mm. courts. Have we, the UK, now moved on in the 20 years since the book was published? Yes, I think in a sense there's no tendency uh, to press for heavier damages and uh, it's moving imperceptibly towards the uh, position in the United States. I think that's deplorable. Perhaps we've taken to the culture of large damages mm. too greatly. You also pointed out that insurance has altered the balance in many areas of tort. Persons don't pay the price for negligence, their insurance companies do. Mm. And this highlights the conflict of, of defining negligence and accident. 
all in all, you seem not happy with the UK system of dealing with accidents, which you define as what talk mainly deals with. Yes. And you were critical of the 76 Pearson Commission's recommendations, which were not acted upon. Yes. You cited the example of France, where accidents at work are not dealt with by tort, and New Zealand, where the accident compensation scheme is enshrined in statute. That is why you said tort law was at a crossroads. Yes. Has the situation improved in 20 years? Not markedly improved, but uh, I think the fact that uh, now uh, litigation in tort is conducted through insurance companies, so and they've got much larger financial resources behind them and so they tend to litigate as far as possible. On page 44, we're very critical of a very theoretical approach taken by academics to tort issues. There's a lot of theory, but it is often not practical or of use in the real world. Also in the UK in particular, academics did not like to criticise judges. Has this changed? No, I don't think it has, no. There's still a great deal of respect and deference played, uh, uh, shown towards judges. Um, but uh, I don't know that there's been any marked change in that respect. Some of the reviewers found your comparison with US deviation from the common law on the question of defamation very useful. In effect, the Supreme Court felt that the common law, as applied by individual states, did not uphold the level of free speech that the US needed. Do you think we should be going along those lines? Not really, no, I don't think we should. But uh, I think the tendency is inevitable, though to differentiate between public and private figures and perhaps whether the matter is public or private. Yes, I think it is. From your other writings, for example, your lectures on the common law, you seemed in favour of a Bill of Rights to deal with such matters. This would take us closer to the US legal position, if not necessarily the law itself. Is this still your view, Mr. Dyes? I think so, yes. 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 Because the haphazard way in which the common law has developed and is developing, uh, I think is out of date now. It's too haphazard. Mm. And, uh, if we could only inject some kind of system or plan for growth, it would be ideal, but I don't know how, how, how you can bring that about. Hmm. Thank you very much, Mr. Dyes. Very interesting.